Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. I'm not as bright as the kids. I, I still haven't worked out how you get from chocolate buttons to crucifixion, but you can explain that to me later. Mm. That's going to puzzle me all the rest of this morning, actually. <laughs> it rarely happens to me. I just normally I understand the children's talk within about 20 seconds of it starting. This one's left me completely bamboozled. Anyway, as Andrew said, we are starting a new series this morning on the central distinctive of Christianity. The thing that above all else separates the Christian faith from all other understandings of the world and religions and, and faiths, and it is the cross. And we're going to spend four weeks. Next week, uh, the power of the cross. The week after, remembering the cross, how we should properly remember it. And then um, the fourth week, experiencing the cross in our own lives now, these days. We're looking at, at God's master plan for the entire human race. God formulated this great plan in the mists of eternity, it remained locked up, hidden away from understanding for millennia. Locked away in the deepest, darkest vault of God's own vast intelligence. And then at the right time, it was made known. So that we are now able, these uh, four Sundays, to talk, talk about something of what's involved in the cross. Something very profound happened at a particular point in history on the planet, the heart of the creator of the entire universe, mind-boggling mathematics, evolved in, in the, the distances in the universe, and the heart of the one who fought that all out and brought it into being, was at a particular day torn and broken. The fundamental relationship within the universe the Trinity itself experienced a breaking the like of which we can simply not imagine on the day of the crucifixion, the cross. The cross, crucifixion, was the most important event in the entire history of the universe. And that's what we're going to be looking at. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 8, there is, therefore, he says, now, no condemnation. None at all for certain folk. There was once, there isn't now. And that turning point was the cross. Up to that point, people were under the condemnation of a very righteous and awesomely holy God. Beyond that point, it was possible for there to be no condemnation at all. It really is a big, big subject these next um, few weeks. If you'd like to turn with me um, to Paul's letter to the uh, Roman Christians. If you don't have a Bible, all you do now is put your hand up, and Ron will be happy to bring you one. Romans, the third chapter. This is the classic passage we're going to read on one aspect of the doctrine, the Christian doctrine of the cross. We're going to start halfway through verse 9. So if you could turn to chapter 3, in the middle of verse 9, 
And it reads like this. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, and then he quotes from the Old Testament, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they don't know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God, quite apart from law, has been made known, been unveiled, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him, that is Christ Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We'll stop there. And take a deep breath and seek to understand the doctrine of the cross. From the very middle of of chapter 1 in Romans, Paul has been showing why, in verse after verse, why, with good reason, God is offended by the entire human race. Every single one of us. People of any religion, whatever, and no religion at all. Equally. And Paul has divided the race, the human race, down through history into three groups. They are either pagans or moralists or Jews, he says. And he talks about the pagans in chapter 1 from verses 18 to 32. These are the people who don't basically care about God. They turn their back on him. They are ungrateful for all that he's given. They are indifferent to him. They just don't want God in their lives. They are pagans. And the result, says Paul, is they quickly fall into idolatry, verses 22, 23 of chapter 1. They claim to be wise. They actually become fools. They exchange the glory of God for mere images. And before long, they've opened the door to a whole series of wickednesses which pour into their lives. And they become addicted to one thing after another. You can see between verses 29 of chapter 1 down to 31. They're full up of envy and murder and strife, they're gossips, they're God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and so on. 
these things pour in when you turn your back away from God. Turn your back on the light and you then only look at darkness. And that begins to be absorbed into your own soul, the pagans. Secondly, then Paul talks about the moralists in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. They are great believers in how upright and good they are. They have a very high view of themselves. Quite a number of Christians are like this. And we know good Gentiles, loads of them, don't we? Very good Gentiles. Paul says these people are very inclined to point out the faults of others and very disinclined ever to repent of their own. Actually, verse 5 of chapter 2, he talks about their stubborn and unrepentant hearts, quite happy with the idea of judgment on the human race and judgment in human society, so long as it always falls on other people. Moralists, trying to be good, perhaps. And yet just as offensive to God. And then there's a third group. He calls the Jews, chapter 2, verse 17, down to chapter 3, verse 8, just before our reading began. And they boast about the Jewish law which God has given them. God gave it to them. Gave them the Ten Commandments. God gave them his own personal revelation of himself. And they feel they have a God-given duty to teach everybody else around the world all about God's standards, but they don't have any ability to keep those standards themselves. And so we come into our passage. And it's sobering conclusion that there isn't a single righteous person, nor ever has been, apart, we should say, from Jesus. In the entire history of the human race, there is not even one righteous, not one who is in themselves good enough for God. What Paul does is he, he throws at you um, a barrage of quotations from the Psalms. No one is righteous, he says, verse 10. Verse 11, no one understands. No one seeks God. Verse 12, no one is really good. And then he says, verse 13, their tongues practice deceit. Their mouths are full of bitterness, verse 14. There's no fear of God in their hearts, verse 18. And if you've got one of those Bibles that has the little reference points at the bottom of the page, you can see Psalm 51, Psalm 14, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, and so on. He is just peppering you with quotations from God's word. Now, we each vary, don't we, in our own unique personal mixture of the way in which these things are true of us. Some people do have more control over their tongues than others. Some people do behave differently, perhaps better than others. But put the whole lot together, the motives, the attitudes, the heart, the words, the things we do, the things we fail to do, as Paul's verdict, God's verdict on the whole human race is that we are offensive to God. Now, if you were to ask the average person around that you meet, what is uh, his or her greatest need? Ask them to identify. You get a whole range of answers. Usually married couple might, might say, well, their greatest need is to give up the mortgage payment. It's been enough more than they can choose. Students back for their final term. So that is, but 
just a little bit more of the gift of concentration would help, I suppose. To pass those final exams would be their greatest need. You talk to middle-aged parents, and their greatest need will have something to do with teenage sons and daughters. Or a sick person would say their greatest need is just to have their health back. Or a lonely person would say my greatest need at the moment in life is just to have someone who cares for me, who knows me, whom I can trust. Dozens of felt needs all wrong. Our greatest need as human beings is for an answer to our sin. And this is what Christianity offered. Different from Eastern religions, from, from the faiths that are pouring in with the New Age movement, the ideas that capture people's imagination. Our greatest need is for God's forgiveness. And when that is settled, no other need can ever be so great. Paul is arguing this, logically, like a lawyer. He was a genius. He could have argued the hind leg off a donkey in any one of three languages. Monumental intellect. He's been taking us through this. This is the point that he has reached. Now what should we do? If we too fall under this verdict, what should we do? Try harder? Be more religious? Pray a bit more? Is there any hope? And as Pearl preaches into verse 21, it's like a sudden flood of sunlight that, that pours out upon the people as they sit listening to this letter being read. There is a new kind of righteousness that is on offer. And they told you about the chapter that I heard um, some months ago now in Warwick, a student who was explaining how he'd been invited into one of these just looking groups and he went along. He didn't realize it was a Bible study. Got into an absolute panic when he discovered it was. I think the person inviting him hadn't quite fully explained what the object of the thing was. And he got into the room and, and he, when they opened the Bibles, he ran away. He got out of the room and fled. And months later, in some bar in, in the Students' Union, fell into conversation with a girl who was there. And I think rather fancied her and was extremely disappointed to be turned down. And even worse, when she talked about God, when, when she turned him down. And he woke up the next day with a hangover. And somehow running in it all was the, the idea that God was involved in this. He didn't understand it. So quietly, he made his way back to the New Testament and read it all the way through. Was profoundly struck by it. And then during the course of the summer holidays, read the Old Testament all the way through. Hmm. So I asked how many people here had done that. This is a chapter who isn't even yet a Christian. He was struck by how true the New Testament was. And then when he read the Old Testament, this is awesome, how he plowed his way through some of the, the, the denser thicket of the Pentateuch. What struck him was how much of a parallel and a tie-up there was between the old and the new. This is big theology. And by the end of last summer, he wanted to talk to God. And he wanted to be in God's family, and he wanted to be open and real and close to God. So what he prayed, he told her, was, could he please have whatever was on special offer? Which is the most simple, supermarty culture form of becoming a Christian I'd ever heard of. Oh God, whatever's on special offer, can I have it? This is what is on special offer. A new kind of righteousness 
that is made known is announced by God. Paul says it's got three features. Number one, it has nothing whatever to do with religious rules or religious feelings or religious expectations. Doesn't involve religion. Religious expectations of yourself don't come into it. Nothing to do with religious deserving at all. Paul says in verse 21, this righteousness which comes from God is quite apart from the law. And secondly, it is something given to believers in Jesus. Let's read verse 22 again. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Every single one who reaches out their hand in trust to the Lord Jesus, no matter how weak that hand may be, how small their understanding. What does that verse say? This righteousness comes from God to those who believe in Jesus, to all who believe in Jesus. And the third thing Paul would say is it's free. Verse 24, they're justified freely. He settles your moral debt. It's like a, it's like a bank transfer. You know, one of these automatic instant transfers of money into your account perhaps to cancel your entire debt. Some would be glad of that. To cancel your moral debt, completely undeserved. How is this possible that God can do such a thing and still be God, still be holy and righteous? Well, that is what Paul goes on immediately to explain. It's not a matter of God just pretending to himself. Saying people are guilt-free and holy when they clearly aren't. That would be ridiculous. God doesn't play make-believe games like that. Something actually happened. Something big enough to buy us all back from the condemnation and judgment into which we've fallen. Verse 25, God presented him, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement. He's right back into that Jewish picture where there was one day in the calendar when the sins of God's people were transferred, all of them, onto a perfect young lamb. You can imagine this happening, can't you? The lamb was led in, and people would stand around as bats reached out their hands to identify with this, hold up their hands. They wanted to be included in this. And on that day of the covenant, there was a lamb that took away the sins of God's people, took them into himself, and then away. And how was the Lord Jesus introduced at the beginning of John's Gospel? John stood back and said, look, here comes, finally after all these years, we're getting closer to the moment when this will become completely known, here comes the man who is God's lamb. God himself has had a lamb in preparation all these years. Here he comes. He took on himself our liabilities, received our judgment. Paul says, this is what the law and the prophets have been testifying to all those years. I mean, what is the best known prophecy, perhaps, from the Old Testament? Is it not Isaiah 53? What does it say? He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It couldn't be plainer, eh? And this was all God's idea. God presented him as a sacrifice. This has been locked up, as I've said, for millennia in God's mind. 
He wanted us to be forgiven, pardoned, accepted, safe. It was all God's idea from the beginning. This is what Paul is calling our justification. God's brilliant way of declaring guilty person pardoned and with no further charges to answer. And please understand this. It is a once and for all thing. It can't happen to you many different times in your life. God doesn't look at our life as small moral unit, each one to be dealt with. Hebrews 9, 27 says, It's given unto people only once to die, and after that comes the judgment. And this justification deals with that one final single judgment. It is, shall we say, the verdict of the last judgment, the verdict we would long for, brought forward into now, so that my whole life, even my future, is declared to be forgiven. It deals with the last judgment. Settles the whole business. People sometimes say that morally that isn't fair. To let an innocent third party suffer for someone's sin. Well, that would be true, wouldn't it? If a third party were to suffer for my sin against God, that would be true. Very unfair. But the wonderful thing about this is that there is no third party. This is God himself. This is within the Trinity. The one Godhead. Jesus, the Son, presented, offered willingly by God the Father for me to be forgiven. And Paul notice, he says this, he's done it in this way to demonstrate not his unfairness, not his partiality to certain folks, but exactly how fair and just he is. Have you ever thought about it? The cross of Christ is the most leveling thing within the church and in human relationship. Forgiveness is a gift. It is true that some people find being religious easier than others. Some people find meetings like this easier than others. Some people respond to the notion of a, a whole evening of prayer. They can hardly wait. They wish it was Friday already. Other people hope the next week does without a Friday. Some people love prayer meetings. Some people love them more when they get into them. But they go through appalling battles beforehand. Some people just like being nice to their neighbors and loving their neighbors, especially when they wake up early in the morning. Other people, you don't go near them, you don't touch them, you don't speak to them for, for hours until you sort of go on underneath your eyebrows and see if they've recovered from the night yet. And it's no different on Sundays. It would be a great, great thing, wouldn't it be, to, to discover how many of the families that come here regularly have rows regularly on Sunday mornings. Some of us find these kind of religious things so much easier than others. Don't find reading the Bible easier than others. Sometimes they read the Bible and oh, the truth comes out, tap it around inside their head and they have a, they think it's marvelous. Other people, it is like cheering your way through the Sahara. We're all different. If our acceptance into God's family 
depended upon our feelings or our abilities or our temperament or our background or our religious history. How unfair God would be. Now what God has done is to make a salvation equally, freely available, just as a gift. Not dependent upon us at all. Available to any who will say, Lord, have mercy on me. And the people who lived before Christ are not at any great disadvantage compared with the people who live after Christ either. God has demonstrated, says the passage, his justice, his fairness, to both before and after. People could throw themselves on the mercy of God before Jesus came as much as after he had come. Every child of God is adopted into God's family on exactly the same basis because of the cross. There's a huge number of practical implications to all this. I took the hint that it was to be only half an hour. So let me just rattle rapidly through four. Number one, we should forgive each other. This is one of the implications. If you are a cross-centered Christian, we should forgive one another and not hold grudges. Why? Because God has equally freely forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, in Christ God forgave you. God lovingly has forgiven those who turn to him for mercy. God, God hasn't expected us to go jumping through various hoops. Don't hold grudges as a Christian. Secondly, we should stop feeling superior one to another. We wouldn't be Christians at all if it wasn't for the cross. Every gift we have ever received, every opportunity we've ever received, it only comes from above. There is no place among Christians for people feeling superior one to another. Sure, folks have got different jobs. You wouldn't get very blessed if I was playing the piano for Sunday morning services. Ah, happy of a Roger to do it. I can only play two, two tunes and one of them isn't Christian. You get bored out of your mind if you had to sing the other one every single time we ever stood up. Different jobs, but equality. People are not to feel that they've been elevated somehow to a higher status. Thirdly, we should trust God for every good thing that we need. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God has given you his son to be your saviour. Will he not also give you whatever else you need along the way and into glory? Is a man going to buy himself a Rolls Royce for thousands of pounds? I haven't the slightest idea how much they cost now. It's been a while since I looked at the catalogue. And then he's so penny-pinching that he wouldn't buy any petrol to put in it. God has valued you at way more than Rolls Royce level. Has paid more than you can imagine to have you in his family. Is he now going to deny the occasional fill up of the tank to get you to keep going 
Now, because of the cross, we can trust God for whatever else we need. And fourthly, we should pray for our neighbors and friends that God would open their eyes to see and understand all this. If you are a believer in the cross of the Lord Jesus, how can you not pray for friends and neighbors that God would open their eyes to, to what has been a mercy granted to you? After peeping into the implications of this extraordinary truth that, as I say, was locked up in God's mind and heart for a very long time and is now burst upon the world as the key to their salvation, their security, their stability in times of grief, their hope as they look forward to the future, their message as they seek to go planting new churches, the key to relationships within families. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the key to everything else that we stand for in this church. May God help us to ponder these things and not just let them fly out of our hair like wisps of dandelion fluff. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.